Welcome to the Moz Monthly Podcast. Thorough discussion and in-depth information about the news, stories, and trends related to emergency medical services in Michigan. The Moz Monthly Podcast is brought to you by the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services. Here's your host, Moz Executive Director, Angela Madden. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the newest edition, the newest episode of the Moz Monthly Podcast. I'm your host, the Executive Director of the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services, Angela Madden. Joining me today are reimbursement gurus, reimbursement committee chair Ron Slagle from Emergent Health Partners, and Katie Arns from Life EMS Ambulance. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Angela. Great to be here. Yes, thank you, Angela. Ron, you have served on the Moz Board of Directors, I believe, since... 1993, and as our reimbursement committee chair, some shortly after that, 1995. How'd you get tagged with that job? So I came on the Moss board in 1993 after the general manager at Life Care Ambulance at that time left uh, for another position and thought, hey, this would be a good place to get uh, some understanding what goes on across the state. So I got on the board. The reimbursement chair at that time was uh, Bill Gephardt from Medic One Ambulance, where Jack Fisher, our current president, is executive director now. Bill then uh, in uh, 1995 took a new role as the executive director for mobile health resources, and although they remain an affiliate member of organization since they were a billing service and not an ambulance service, couldn't remain in the in the chair role under our MOS bylaws. So I've been on the reimbursement committee. Uh, they tapped me. And then, uh, yeah, I've served since that since 1995. And I've joked with people, it's kind of a um, position for life. But at some point here in the next decade, I'll probably retire and we'll have to tap someone else. But we've seen a lot of changes since the 1990s. Well, that's a great segue to introduce your co-chair. Katie, you've been um, with Life EMS for 12 years-ish now in a customer accounts role. Tell us a little bit about yourself. To be honest, I'm not quite sure when I became the vice chair of the reimbursement committee, but it's something I've accepted with open arms. So I started at Life EMS uh, pretty much right out of college in 2008 and worked my way up to now as director. And and through those years, um, I've kind of weaseled my way through reimbursement issues, concerns, and um, really advocating for EMS industry and um, taking a part of the reimbursement committee. And I think it was probably around 2011 um, when I kind of stepped in and, and started working directly with Ron on reimbursement issues and advocating for our industry. Well, I can tell you, Maz is, is grateful to have you both in these positions. Statewide, you have both garnered a reputation of being exceptionally knowledgeable on reimbursement issues and are one of our first two calls when an issue arises. When a call comes in, the reimbursement committee does typically take action. Ron, tell us a little bit about the committee. What's its makeup and what are its general responsibilities? Sure. One thing I really like about a committee is it's really open to anyone who's a MOS member. And we have, I think, a representation from a a wide variety of our membership. So that includes um, some cases owners, someplace billing directors, sometimes the billers themselves, uh, representing a a good geographic representation of our members from uh, from across the state. And I think, you know, we meet, currently we meet every other month, uh, and we were meeting by a conference call even before COVID came, but we found that to be an effective method of communication, and, and we're open to other members joining us uh, to get, gain information, to uh, give their input, and ask their questions. So what exactly do you guys talk about in your committee meetings? 
I think the main focus we look at is uh, what are current issues that we're all facing. We generally don't focus on a, a reimbursement issue that's specific to one or two ambulance services, but really focus on those issues that are common for all ambulance providers across the state. So we look at problems we may be having with specific payers. We look at policy issues that are coming out from uh, especially Medicare and Medicaid, but as well as other commercial payers uh, and other um, agencies that pay for ambulance service and then work to problem solve those issues by uh, sharing in, a, in our committee meetings uh, and between meetings what has happened, giving examples through then the MAS office so that as individual services, we're not seeing PHI that would be not appropriate for uh, individuals to see. So we maintaining those, those levels of confidentiality on behalf of our patients. Uh, and then meeting with and advocating for uh, our members with those payer groups. And then also working really closely and hand in hand with our government relations committee on MAS because a lot of things we have to deal with the Michigan legislature or the administration of the governor's office uh, has impact on things that affect us day to day. And then finally, we serve as a resource to our members. Uh, we share best practices, keep them up to date on federal and state reimbursement issues. Uh, and this happens in a variety of ways. We've hosted uh, in-person meetings and training sessions where we've had national speakers or state speakers. We've done virtual meetings and then just sharing uh, information by email blasts and other methods to keep everybody informed because we, we represent from the largest services in Michigan to the very smallest. And we need to make sure all of our members uh, have the opportunity to know the information that they need to have to uh, do the best in their billing practices for their local communities. So it sounds to me like the two of you and your committee are really in the thick of current issues, reimbursement-related issues that are facing EMS agencies around the state and potentially even around the country today. Katie, what are some of those challenges that we're seeing agencies face right now? Well, I think first and foremost, um, you know, the increasing challenges to get paid for services we're doing every day, the services we know how to perform, and we're, we're doing them within our scope of practice, our protocols. However, we continue to face, you know, different reimbursement challenges depending on the payer. Um, we continue to, it appears, you know, consistently receive additional work to try and get paid. So there's multiple steps now that we have to take. Um, not only on the operation side, but really on the billing side. It's not really send a clean claim anymore and get paid, right, within our 30 to 45 days. So it's really continuing to see how payers are creating boundaries that they're going to require records and they're going to require prior authorization on non-emergency services and continuing to see coinsurance amounts go up and patient liability going up. And really from a reimbursement standpoint, you know, it's, it's up to us to represent our industry and our state and go to these payers and explain to them that some of these parameters they're trying to apply to all medical providers doesn't work in EMS. You know, we're, we are unique and trying to educate them on how we are unique and, you know, we don't have the advantage of having a 24-hour notice to get a prior authorization. You know, it's a battle just to get the payer information at the time of the call. And then typically, you know, we have to go now and there's no time at that point to try and get a prior authorization. And so I think that's one I'd say probably within the last 10 years, that's something we've continued to see come up. And Ron and I and the committee have talked specifically to payers who continue to um, bring those challenges to us and really educating them on 
this isn't a blanket one size fits all for all medical providers and how can we work together to try and reduce the burden on us and on them as well. Um, claim processes controlled by software. So, you know, really looking at, there's a lot of artificial intelligence that's coming out and we all work with different software vendors, which I think is also unique because our committee comprises of small and large organizations. And so some of us have, we're working with billing, you know, vendors who do the billing for them. And so they may be using one software system and I'm using a different system and Ron's using a different system. And so we're able to, you know, work together collectively for best practices and then reach out to our vendors and express what changes need to be to be made. Um, a lot of the changes are driven by payer behavior. You know, you have one payer that's going to require mileage um, in a certain way. Maybe they're requiring a new modifier on the mileage, um, you know, for instance, Blue Cross Blue Shield, they initiated that and they worked with us to try to figure out what was the best way within our software, we could make it easy for all providers to meet their claim requirement, their claim processing requirements. So that's just one example. Payments not keeping up with expenses of providing care and, you know, cost data collection is coming down the pipe. That was just delayed again for a year. And so that's another area we're really focusing on and trying to make sure that we're educating our members and our industry so that when they are chosen to report their data, they're prepared to do that in a manner in which it's compliant and it's good data so that we can get um, you know, good results out. And then again, watching very closely just our uncompensated care. So, and I think uncompensated care goes two ways. So really paying attention, especially right now as unemployment rates are going up, unfortunately, um, looking at who's not insured. And then also on the other end of that, who's underinsured. Deductibles continue to rise. Obviously, we're all recognizing that um, even though somebody may have coverage, once you bill that claim, you're going to get a rejection and now you're seeking that full balance at that point from the patient because it's been applied to their deductible. And how do you help um, educate your patients and make sure that when they get that bill, they know why they're responsible for this and what are the options in which that they can satisfy this payment and really working together and in, in collecting that, that information and that data as an industry so we can continue to share that with our payers and they can recognize the direct correlation that has to, to our costs and our, um, you know, ability to perform the services we need to. So Angela, one thing that has been uh, an advantage for the Moss Reimbursement Committee, um, and we've taken time to get us there, but I'm, I certainly think we're there today, is that we can speak on behalf of our industry and our members so that we have a problem with a payer. We don't have to have individual services uh, all contacting that payer to try and resolve that issue. We can speak as one voice on behalf of our members. And we also have it where they, those payers, when they want to make a change in cases, they reach out to us, whether that be Medicaid or Blue Cross or other payers. Mm -hmm. They're able to reach out to us to say, hey, this is what we think we're going to do. How is this going to impact your organization? That certainly wasn't the case back in the 90s when I first joined the reimbursement committee. I remember many meetings with uh, some payers that were resolving payment issues that uh, we don't even face today. Some of the challenges of uh, payers is 
they're very large and they have to pay claims for hospital, physician, DME, ambulance, and all other healthcare groups. And so they have processes that they have to put in place. And as Katie mentioned, uh, EMS billing is a unique uh, animal. And sometimes we don't get recognized of the challenges uh, change that they might make for all payers will have on us as ambulance providers. So I think we serve as a resource and a voice uh, for our members in that capacity. And I want to take the opportunity to point out that a lot of the changes and in a lot of the items that you work on with various payers are beneficial to all EMS agencies around the state, not just particularly or specifically MAS members. The payers are going to make the change for everybody across the board because it makes life easier for them and it makes life easier for us as well. Katie, you talked a little bit about how billing and reimbursement can be unique from one agency to another, whether it's due to that individual agency's size. Software uh, vendors, yeah. Their, their software, their vendor. Right. Can you they use a clearinghouse? Yeah. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how the reimbursement committee approaches uh, some of those some of those issues? Yeah, so when we, typically when Ron and I are, um, you know, we'll have a provider that will reach out to either Angela and then Angela will forward the concern to us or the question. And so really it's bringing it down to what is, first, is it a payer issue? So is it one, is it a specific payer they're experiencing it with? Could it be a system issue where maybe their system is pushing out the claim, for instance, with the information the payer doesn't need? And so at that point, it's really um, gathering the facts to try and determine which route do we need to go? Is, is it specific? And I think to Ron's point, what he was mentioning too, is we don't typically go straight to Medicaid and say all EMS providers are experiencing you know, a claim issue or getting this claim rejection. We really try to triage, I think would be the best word. We try to triage at the time that it's brought to our attention whether or not this is an isolated claim issue or is this system-wide. And so we will reach out to all of our members just and say, you know, is anyone else experiencing the same issue? And if the answer is yes, then at that time, um, we'll gather information, claim examples without HIPAA obviously involved, and then we will reach out to our contacts at whoever the payer may be, or even, you know, an, another association that oversees that group of payers, and then we can approach that issue at that time. If it's not um, obvious, if maybe it's just isolated to that specific provider, then we will work together with them to try and troubleshoot, and a lot of times I think it just comes down to getting the policies and the procedures in a format that they can understand. And so it's recognizing that these really small providers, they don't understand billing. That's not their main priority. And so they may not realize that when they're not, you know, for instance, we'll just say they're documenting mileage um, and it's not in the standard way the payer wants to receive it, that's something that we can work with them on and making sure they have the resources and the material that is needed to, to correct that issue. Thanks, Katie. I think that's important information for our listeners to know, depending on what type of agency they may be coming from. Remember, our podcast is available anywhere you may listen to your podcasts. Let's segue a little bit. Ron, I'm going I'm to point this question to you. There are a number of payers or payer groups that we have been working with 
fairly consistently and specifically. Can you talk maybe about some of those more recent specific examples and, and how we're working with those payers to resolve them? Sure. So one of them we work very closely with is uh, Medicaid. We have worked with uh, a variety of individuals over the years. Uh, one of the challenges we sometimes face is uh, people move on to new positions uh, or they retire. And so we have to, uh, to align ourselves with new individuals. But the individual employees in our state Medicaid office have, have really been open to our suggestions, comments, and dialogue. So that we really appreciate that because I know in some states, talking to our colleagues around the country, they either don't really have good relationships or conversations uh, because the state offices aren't open to hearing from them. So we really appreciate that, appreciate that about Michigan Medicaid. So one of the things we've obviously really recently work with them on is some of the impacts that COVID has had uh, on our agencies. They've had emergency orders that have come down from the administration, but there's also been changes from the, at the federal level that have rolled down through the states and to the local levels. And we've had to get clarification and advocate for some of those changes as it relates to uh, modifications and policies uh, in what they're going to recognize for payments where they would normally not have made payments for that outside of COVID, uh, changes in how uh, modifiers and other uh, billing practices take place uh, to recognize things that are going on specific to COVID as we move, especially in the springtime when we're moving patients to facilities that normally would not have been covered uh, by Medicaid uh, as we opened up alternative care centers, uh, as uh, skilled nursing facilities opened up hub uh, treatment centers for COVID positive patients, and just a wide variety of things that we've had to uh, keep on top of. I know in the field, our paramedics EMTs had a lot of medical protocols that changed on a weekly basis, but we had a number of billing protocols that changed uh, as well, and working hand-in-hand -hand at Medicaid uh, was, was uh, really important to do that too. Uh, Katie, anything else that I missed? No, I don't think so. I think really just touching on the, the communication is key and um, working together and so having that relationship built with our Medicaid contacts so that they're comfortable coming to us and and asking hey here's a policy we're presenting um, to implement and then we're able to go back obviously to to our committee and our members and see how that's not only just going to impact my organization which is fairly large and runs as well but how would that impact you know these small really super rural rural areas as, as well. One of the other uh, groups we work with on a regular basis is uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. They're the largest uh, commercial payer in our state. And so uh, we really have had a, built a good relationship with them. And I'm pleased to say that happens not only from the people who deal with claims and uh, our provider customer uh, relationships that we have, but it works all the way up to the top levels of an organization, including uh, some of their lead medical directors and administrative uh, individuals. So that, that's been, been very beneficial. And I'd say Blue Cross Blue Shield is one of those organizations because of that relationship we have. When they look to make a change or are considering a change, they actually seek out our input either on a formal or informal basis on a wide variety of topics. Um, I think they're really looking at how healthcare is uh, evolving and we've had a lot of discussions with them related to community paramedic and treating place paramedicine, uh, which is coming out with our ET3 pilot program for a number of our Michigan uh, providers. And Blue Cross has really been uh, at, at the table 
uh, actually partnering with our industry to, um, to make changes to cover some of those services as we see how medical care is going to evolve, um, not only for emergency medical services, uh, but in our relationships with uh, facilities and hospitals. So uh, that's really been a, a rewarding partnership because I will, I will tell you back in the 90s, it was a lot more adversarial um, with uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield and uh, really commend them uh, and our organization from being able to come together. And I think as people work together on a regular basis, then you get away from the finger pointing and the uh, concerns that, that they're just out to get you and really work together to, to actually solve the problem. And, and we don't always agree with, with everybody that we interact with. Uh, there's many times that we don't, but at least we um, can share openly uh, what the concerns are. And even if they don't make that change today, that plants the seed that maybe they'll make that change a couple years down the road. We've also worked uh, recently over the past couple of years with the Michigan Association of Health Plans. Uh, this uh, trade association here in Michigan uh, represents uh, many of our Medicaid managed care organizations, and that is probably one group of organizations over the last uh, five or seven years or so that we've had some struggles with. Sometimes their payer processes uh, have uh, been at odds with how uh, normal practices would uh, occur, uh, or they've put a system edit in place that suddenly makes an unanticipated change. So being able to go to that organization to share our concerns on a global basis allows a couple things to happen. One, it allows us to have uh, contacts on an individual basis with specific uh, Medicaid managed care organizations, or, or if there's a global problem across all of those uh, payers, then the, uh, the Michigan Association of Health Plans uh, relationship we have, they can address that as a group. And I think that gives us more credibility and more access to be able to problem solve. Katie, I think uh, one thing we didn't mention about Katie was her relationship and role in, with uh, WPS. Um, and she's been in that role uh, for a number of years on some, um, some committees. So I think we'll let her um, share with our listeners what, uh, what role she plays there and some of the challenges and the opportunities we have with our Medicare carrier. Yeah, so WPS has a provider outreach and education group um, called the POEG. And so I've been a part of that group now for about, I think, five years. And essentially, we do meet quarterly. Um, recently, it's been just twice a year, but we do get together. And it's just, it's not only EMS providers, but it's a number of different types of providers from physician offices, hospital, um, ER practices. And we really sit down to the table and talk about how upcoming policy changes or current policy can impact each piece of the puzzle of healthcare and the outcome. And not only the policy, but how WPS can improve how they're providing that information from an educational standpoint. And so one of, I think, the wins from this is they, WPS has their learning center and it's a great resource and they've worked very hard on ensuring that there is a good amount of ambulance content on their site. And if you're not, are, if you're not registered, I would definitely advocate that you go out and get registered for the Learning Center. And there are a number of um, webinars on there that are on demand that you can you know, listen to or use as a resource as needed. And then also on there, you can register and receive upcoming events for either additional, hopefully at some point we'll return to in-person training, but in-person training and then also online courses that will be coming up. And so 
they have reached out to us as an industry to get feedback as to what more can they provide in educational material. And what's really nice is that they don't only ask on what information they can provide to us for as an ambulance provider, but how can they adjust the content for other providers, for instance, skilled nursing facilities, so that they can understand what ambulance services under you know, part A, they may be responsible for. So that's it. That's been a huge win. And again, they reach out to us proactively when they're looking at changes or adjustments to their policy to get our feedback before they just, you know, blanketly and blindly send that out. Thanks, Katie. And I do want to add a quick note that we will make sure that a link to the WPS Learning Center website is in our show notes for today so that anybody that does need access to it can make sure to get that. Thanks to both of you for going through um, that detail. So Ron, Katie, I want to take this opportunity to segue into some extremely important issues, topics that are more policy related that are in the news right now, today. And for future reference, we we may need to come back and have in-depth discussions on any one or any number of these issues that we're about to talk about. But I think it's important that we at least let our listeners know that these are items that we are following. These are issues that we are tracking and paying very close attention to. The first one that comes to my mind is surprise billing or balance billing. This is a a topic that's been widely in the news, both here in, in the state of Michigan and federally. One of you want to kind of update our listeners as to what we're watching, what we're looking for, potentially some legislative wins that we've already had on the topic, and where we're going moving forward on this issue. So I'll just add that there are current pieces of legislation in both the U.S. Congress and in the Michigan legislature uh, looking at this. And it's, it's one of those issues that concerns people. Uh, I think there's confusion about what surprise billing is. So it's a catchphrase right now. But when someone has a medical procedure, typically the surprise billing is they've gone to the hospital and they've had some kind of procedure and some some provider or some healthcare group in that uh, scope of care isn't in-network provider for that hospital system, and therefore they get a larger bill than what they expected. That's typically what it's been in the past, but now I think it's really evolved to, I got this bill and I suddenly don't know how to pay it. And I think there have been a number of uh, ambulance bills, both by air and ground, that have caught uh, national and uh, state attention in the news media. So I think that really plays into some of the people in the legislature pushing those ideas forward. I think the biggest challenge we have is that the costs for providing emergency medical services in our individual communities isn't fully covered by most payers, including Medicare and definitely not by Medicaid. So the challenge is it's a, it's a cost shifting to commercial insurances and they're really trying to ratchet down on how much they pay. But if we don't address the systemic challenges that we have of how reimbursement is provided to care for uh, EMS services in our state, then surprise billing is, is, is not really addressing the issue at hand. So I think it's the popular topic, uh, and we're obviously paying very close attention to it. The good news is, at the state level, 
we've been able to carve out ambulance services so we're not in the current legislation. And as we talked to the uh, sponsors of that legislation, it was actually not even their intent to include ambulance services in the legislation. So we did clarify that and they made a technical change in the current uh, draft of the legislation so that ambulance services are not in that scope. But it's certainly something that all healthcare providers are paying attention to and, and we certainly are as well. Thanks, Ron. In there, you briefly touched on cost shifting from Medicaid and Medicare to the commercial payers and the commercial payers paying more more attention. Is there a way or what is happening at the federal level to help us identify what our costs are to providing service? And will that help potentially solve or at least provide additional information to all the billers um, as it relates to surprise or balanced billing? So I think, um, you know, one of the things we've touched on briefly already is the cost data collection that CMS is going to require that we report um, for providers that were selected, they should start collecting their data for year 2021, and then they will report that data in, in year 2022. And so I think that this is step one. As an industry, we have always indicated, we've always advocated that we are not reimbursed at our cost. And I think to answer your question, Angela, we are only gonna be as good as the data we get because if we receive poor data, then we're gonna receive poor results. And so it really comes down to providers understanding what their cost is and also understanding what their revenue is. And so, you know, cost data collection, it can either, it hopefully will show in writing that many of us are obviously being reimbursed under our cost. And unfortunately, there's only a number of providers nationally that were chosen. And so we originally, before COVID hit, we would have two years of the data collection period. And at this point now, we're only gonna have one. And so as an industry nationally and locally, we are gonna to have to advocate more than ever based on what those numbers show um, and be educated on what our cost is so that we can be prepared to have those conversations with payers, counties, facilities, et cetera, because that information I think is gonna to continue to be um, publicized and it can take just a really small group of you know, bad numbers to represent, unfortunately, a whole. And I don't think that that's the case. It's just going to come down to, um, you know, do providers understand what their expenses, what their costs are, and then also what revenue is. And from our reimbursement committee standpoint, you know, we're going to be really focusing on this through the next year so that we can get out to these smaller providers and make sure that they understand the information that CMS needs and to make sure that they're reporting it accurately um, so we can collect good data and hopefully get good results. So this points out one of the uniquenesses of emergency medical services, the healthcare provider group. We don't have hospitals or physician offices that are either for-profit, non-profit, volunteer, fire-based, or government-operated. Most other healthcare is either for-profit or non-profit. Uh, there's a few cases, a, very, a few isolated cases, that there might be a government-run hospital, but those mostly have uh, waned as well. So we have a unique spread of delivery models in our state and across the country that the payment models have not accounted for. 
And so Katie's point is very accurate that truly recognizing our expenses and our revenues that are associated with providing uh, care to our communities is, is essential. Many organizations have used a variety of methods uh, since the 1970s and 80s when ambulance services as we know them today have evolved. And those include finding other resources and, and revenues service lines to help us support providing an ambulance service in the community to having people serve in, in dual roles and how do you break out those costs, the dual roles and those revenues associated with that. But it's really important that we do that to show the payers what the true cost to providing that service is for each and every local community. To add to that too, you know, our unique complexity of the limited amount of time we have with our patients. And so, you know, we don't have the opportunity to essentially determine what a coinsurance or deductible amount is going to be before service is rendered, like physician offices and hospitals do. And, you know, I had it the other day, I had a doctor's appointment, and, you know, you can register online now. And before I could hit confirm, it asked for my payment. And, you know, we just, we don't have that ability. And so for us too, it's being able to show not only what our cost, our revenue is, but also what is our essentially uncompensated care, which I think is probably one of our biggest costs. And so when we're continuing to see deductibles and coinsurance double or quadruple, and we're having to try and collect that amount from our patients after we've already rendered the service and it can, you know, we're starting to see where it's taking, it used to be, you know, you could say 90 days to collect a payment and we're continuing to see it's taking 120 to 180 days potentially to satisfy that full account. And so um, it's not only showing what our costs are, what our revenue is, but also we just don't have that ability before services seeked or asked for to really understand what our collectability is going to be. You've both touched on some of the changes in the reimbursement landscape uh, that have happened over the course of the industry's lifetime, dating back into the 70s and 80s, as Ron mentioned, to EMS agencies as they are today. How has our current situation, how has COVID-19 affected this landscape? And how do we how do we move forward from here? How do we work through this situation to resolve any of those challenges? You know, I think that's one of the uh, topics that all EMS leaders are facing right now. Um, and, and it's a multifaceted challenge. Uh, it includes the challenge that we're all facing of not enough EMTs and paramedics to meet the needs of our services and requests for service but obviously taking care of our workforce as they're exposed or potentially exposed to COVID uh, as, they, as they work. But I think it's really, uh, it's been a reset in healthcare. So we've seen, unfortunately, COVID ravage the population of Michigan residents that often are in skilled nursing facilities. And so those facilities appropriately have looked at how to better protect their residents and how do they provide healthcare for them when they may have them more securely locked down and not potentially exposed to the virus. So that has changed uh, in a number of avenues, uh, both with telehealth, with other uh, methods that they provide care that maybe they would have moved that patient to care uh, utilizing uh, 
uh, ambulance services or other medical transportation services that we provide uh, for them. They've kept those uh, residents in place and that may be for the medium or the long term. So I think uh, we have to uh, address that and see how that changes. Because as we know, unfortunately, we're volume driven. So as volume drops, that impedes our ability to continue to provide the services in the timely fashion that everybody has accustomed to, especially when we're facing a crisis of uh, EMS staff, not only here in Michigan, but across the country. I think the other area related to COVID is uh, relates to the pilot program that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI, uh, has uh, ready, rolled out to now implement uh, after a COVID delay, ready to re- implement that in January of 2021. And one of the aspects of that is uh, payment for treat in place. Uh, that's not something that most providers, certainly not Medicare, currently do, but we certainly saw an increase in treatment in place uh, during the peak of COVID, as not only did patients not want to go to the emergency department, but we also had the hospitals saying, uh, if that patient doesn't need to show up here in our emergency department, then let's treat them at home. But in many cases, we were not didn't receive payment as ambulance service for, for that, and I think uh, that payers, including Medicare, Medicaid, uh, will be looking at that to evaluate if that's a better method and appropriate method for caring for patients in the future. Thanks, Ron. And that program that you're referring to is called ET3 or Emergency Triage Treat and Transport. Um, And again, will be implemented starting in January of 2021. Katie, the models of payment seem to be changing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, touching on treat in place again, that's going to be probably in the in the upcoming five years, I will see, I anticipate we're going to continue to see a huge push on treatment place. And also um, looking at probably with that risk-based payment models too, potentially. So, you know, as the payers continue to look at how they can control their costs and their expenses, then how can they seek us out as a partner in that to perform, um, you know, treatment at home and whether that means potentially um, within our current scope or potentially looking at expanding our current scope of practice. And um, so I think that's going to be probably number one, not only on Medicare, which it should be, um, but also as we continue to work closely with our commercial payers too, I think that's going to continue to be on their list Um, of looking at how they can partner with EMS agencies or continue to look at how that can be a covered benefit. Um, And then also, you know, it's, it's also looking at, you know, can we partner in a telehealth fashion and, you know, is that part of treat in place and, and really should it be a part of treat in place? I think that's a different conversation. Um, I think, you know, we're, we are already doing treatment in place today without the telehealth component and we're doing it within our protocol and our scope and that's that's been fine um, but can we continue to advance that level of care and then you know also not only just treating place but also looking at um, coverage for alternative payment and modes of transportation models so historically not a lot of payers have covered non-ambulance transportation and so I think that's something that we can continue to look at. Um, there is 
there is data to show that you know people are not getting to their their appointments that they need for preventative care and that obviously can increase costs down the road and lead to higher level of care that's needed and such so um, I think that's something that will be coming down the pipeline as well. Katie, that's a great point. Uh, I was just in a meeting uh, with hospital administrators yesterday where a, a physician indicated that the commercial insurances in particular are really changing and pushing the how care is delivered and specifically being if a patient's in an emergency department and really doesn't need to be admitted to the hospital, that they send that patient home. But that doesn't mean that that patient doesn't need continuing medical care. And so they may need additional medical transportation services outside of ambulance care to get them Mm -hmm. back to their home safely. Uh, And then there's probably going to be in-home care, whether that be done by EMS, whether that be done by home health, or a variety of other service delivery models. But there is going to be an increased need for uh, medical transportation that Certainly, uh, ambulance services in many communities are currently um, filling. Uh, Unfortunately, most insurances don't pay for that. The patient has to pay for that out of pocket. So one of the things we're really paying attention to right now, putting all political views and other things aside, is what the U.S. Supreme Court is going to do as it faces a ruling on the Affordable Care Act. We all have personal perspectives, we all have professional perspectives, but I think just, I just want to lay out what that impact could be if the Supreme Court would rule that the Affordable Care Act is not constitutional. That would have pretty large scale effects across the country. Um, and I'm not judging of whether they should or shouldn't, they're going to they're rule how they're going to rule, and we don't have any impact on that. If it would go away, though, in its entirety, expanded Medicaid goes away, that's a huge impact for not only the, the beneficiaries who have that care, but for us as providers, especially in MS, who a lot of our uncompensated care, we at least got Medicaid coverage for. And I can speak to the next one as a parent. Uh, I have two college-aged children on my health insurance. The Affordable Care Act allowed uh, children to stay on their parents' insurance until the age of 26. And the other uh, important factor that comes to mind is that under the Affordable Care Act, EMS was defined as an essential service, thereby requiring commercial insurances as well as those specifically under the uh, Affordable Care Act to cover uh, our ambulance services. So those are three important aspects and uh, we'll, we'll see how that all plays out in the upcoming weeks and months. I think it's scheduled, there's a case coming to the Supreme Court within a couple of weeks. Obviously, as we know, then that gets debated and uh, argued and we won't get the ruling on that for months down the road, but it is something we're gonna have to pay attention to. Thanks, Ron. And you're right. Those are three very uh, important and essential items that we'll be, we will be watching, that Moz will be watching, that the reimbursement committee will be watching very closely. Let's take the opportunity to talk about some of the historical wins the reimbursement committee has helped um, has helped foster, whether that be administratively, whether that be um, legislatively in particular. Let's talk about no fault. Michigan as a no fault state has had political discussions, legislative discussions about how to reform our no-fault insurance law uh, for quite some time. And recently our legislature and the governor agreed on a, on a particular reform. How has that impacted EMS? And was it, was it a win? Was it sort of a win? Or did we face some, do we still face some challenges? I still think we face some challenges, but we, we did get one win out of that. One of the, um, 
changes in the reform package was that medical providers would go on a fee schedule, and that's going to be implemented over the next several years. Uh, we were able to point out the cost of readiness and the impact on emergency care that we provide uh, should not be included in that, and we were successful in getting an amendment to be carved out of our emergency calls from that fee schedule. Our non-emergency or transfers will still be subject to that fee schedule, but most of our calls that are paid by auto insurances uh, relate to uh, emergency calls. I think we'll, they're still sorting out how this the language of the bill is going to be practically uh, implemented and the uh, challenges, new challenges that will arise uh, from that. So uh, we'll watch that very carefully. I th think the other big change that that's had is it does move the needle from more claims being paid by health insurance and less being paid by auto insurance. So that not only affects us as ambulance providers, it may affect us um, as employers as well. Thanks, Ron. Let's talk briefly about an item that was not necessarily um, well-received among all providers around the state, and that's the QAP, or the Quality Assurance Assessment Program. Essentially, the QAP is an assessment on yourself based on the number of transports that you had provided in a previous year, and those dollars are used to, to draw down additional federal dollars, and we have increased Medicaid reimbursement by 20%. Those new rates took effect in July of 2018. So we've seen the 20% increase now for about 18 months. Um, can one of you talk a little bit about the process of having the QAP instituted and what it means to your agency today or what it means to statewide agencies today? I'll speak to that because actually it's kind of been on my personal agenda as the chair of the reimbursement committee for about 10 years. It took that long to get this implemented. Uh, we were, we've been talking about it for a very long time. We had to wait till the legislature was ready for that to be approved. Uh, behind the scenes, they all said, this is something we value. We want to give more money to ambulance services. They, they've never had mo additional money in the state budget to increase our rates, even though they all agreed individually and collectively we deserved more. They just didn't have the funding to do that. So this was really the only avenue we had left to increase uh, Medicaid rates from what they were. And as you mentioned, we got a 20% increase. So I think that's, that's a value, but it took a lot of work, a lot of time, uh, a lot of changeover in administrations, people we work with to, to move this forward. But many other states have done this as well. And uh, I was pleased that we finally were able to get this accomplished and enacted. It didn't come without some road bumps and some additional challenges. That legislation was recently renewed, I believe, last year. So I think that was very fortunate. And I think this really was a big win for ambulance services across the state. Because of federal regulations, provider assessment cannot then be equally distributed amongst the, the group. It, there's a formula they have to use so that some ambulance services uh, make out better than others. Uh, it's really based on their payer mix. So those with higher Medicaid do uh, make out better than those that have a very high commercial insurance coverage within their payer community. Uh, but this is really the only way that we could make any movement. And I think this was one of those situations for the betterment of all, uh, some services didn't see a benefit from it, but it, it was a betterment for all services across the state of Michigan. Thanks, Ron. Let's go way back now into 
uh, into an item or in, into some things that were happening, when you first started working um, with the reimbursement committee and, be, and became its chair in 1995, tell me a little bit about the lawsuit that Moss filed against the Medicaid, the state Medicaid office. So this was something we had to really seriously uh, discuss as a Moss board of directors and, and other leadership. But our, if, if you think our Medicaid rates today uh, are not satisfactory, you should have seen them what they were in the 1980s and 1990s. And we decided that we, uh, that we had to sue the state of Michigan. And we didn't take that lightly. That's not something you just wake up one morning and go, I'm going to sue the state of Michigan. That kind of burns the potential, has the potential to burn bridges. Um, it, it, it will make the news, etc. cetera. Um, but essentially, um, there was, uh, at the time, uh, a requirement that for the 20% that Medicare did not pay, uh, which happens today, the patient is responsible for that or their secondary insurances. That still holds true today. It used to be that Medicaid uh, was federally required to pay that 20%. Michigan was not doing that. So we, uh, we sought, filed suit against the state of Michigan to say, you need to do that. Medicaid then came back and proposed some rate increases for our industry over the next uh, three to four years which we accepted and settled the lawsuit out of court. We are so glad we did that because several years later, the federal government took away the requirement that states had to pay that 20% copay. So we certainly did the right thing and the timing was, was uh, impeccable uh, and not, not to my credit because I was just coming in as a youngster at that point. Uh, there were others ahead of me who, uh, who championed that cause. I was just a, a small part of it. So that was certainly something uh, that was uh, a challenge back then. One of the other big challenges that we had uh, early on when, when I was in this role, and I alluded to it earlier in the podcast, was uh, the more adversarial relationship we had with Blue Cross Blue Shield. We had some really significant claims processing issues going on. Um, we were meeting with them every quarter to try and resolve these kind of issues. Um, but over the, the years, as we worked out those specific problem areas, uh, we, that allowed us to build some relationships. And Blue Cross Blue Shield has been a, a valuable partner for us for many years now. And it certainly was not that case uh, back in the 90s. I think the other big win that we saw uh, when I first came was that insurance checks uh, used to go, if you were a non-participating provider, would used to go to the patient. And so our ability as an ambulance provider to collect that money from the patient was very challenging. So we actually then went to the Michigan legislature to address that issue as well. And we're successful at getting that accomplished. That was, that was a big win. Uh, and that took a lot of, lot of time, a lot of energy meeting with our legislators because the insurance companies didn't want to have that change made. But we pointed out that was the best thing to do. And it really wasn't appropriate to put the patients in the middle of that. And so we were able to get that change made. And that's something that uh, having a committee and a state association has really benefited all providers. I want to close our episode today and make a point um, to both of you and then get, get your reaction to this. The, the item or the statement that positive relationships has played a key, key role in the work that Moz as an organization and each of the individual committees within Moz has done um, has played a key role in, in developing the policy and helping um, put forth ideas 
whether they be legislative or administrative, administratively that have turned into positive results for EMS agencies around the state. We saw that in our earlier conversation with Moz Board President Jack Fisher as he talked about positive relationships uh, on the grassroots side. We saw that when we talked to Moz Legislative Committee Chair Jeff White about positive relationships with your local leaders as well as your state legislators. And now you and Katie are just talking about it as it relates to a relationship with our payer representatives. How have you seen those relation, the development of those relationships um, become positive or beneficial to, for all EMS agencies across the state? As far as re- building relationships go, specifically from the reimbursement side with our payers, who really are our customers as well, right, um, is seeing that light bulb go off in a meeting when we're able to sit down with them and really put it into how it works in our everyday life as EMS providers. And I have witnessed that, and I know Ron has witnessed that with me. And creating that relationship and that level of trust, and and specifically um, when there is a lot of turnover on the payer leadership side, which we have experienced pretty much every year, it seems we'll have a contact and then we have to find a new contact. It's really, we're creating that relationship with them by reiterating that we do our job really well and we understand EMS. And it's up to us to be able to get them to understand what a day in the life looks like for not only our EMS providers on the front line, but also for our call centers, our dispatch center, and then also for our billers and the time it takes for them to fulfill seeing that claim come through for payment. That has been for me probably the most fulfilling part of being a part of our committee is being able to sit down with them and represent our industry and see the light bulb go off and then see how they're able to hopefully the goal is um, change or um, make that impact within their policy or their organization to, for the betterment of ours. Let me give a, a specific example that I experienced. Uh, I was in a meeting with a payer uh, on behalf of a provider where we were, that payer group was conducting audits and some of the results were not making sense. So we called a meeting and as the that payers audit group explained their process and their findings, the claims department in individuals on the other side of the table, you could see their expression on their face and then some and then someone pointed out to the auditing group that's not how it works in today's wor- world. They were working off two different playbooks and they weren't talking uh, appropriately. So uh, fortunately, after that was pointed out, the person uh, leading that meeting said, I think we have some work to do internally. We'll be back in touch with you. And uh, the good news was they successfully resolved that problem because as we helped them understand the process, their process was not in touch with reality. It maybe was 20 years ago, but medical care and practices and pro- uh, processes that we use for billing change. And we not only have to change that within our own organizations, our payers have to change that. Our, our legislation, administration of our state government and federal government have to recognize that. It always doesn't happen, but it's individual efforts that we make to build those relationships so that when a problem like that arises, one, we can point it out, but two, we can point it out 
appropriately and professionally so they're open to making that change on our behalf. I want to thank you both for joining us on today's episode of the podcast. I'm going to open to either of you have any closing remarks that you would like to add before we conclude. I would just say that the benefits of participating in MOS, the reimbursement committee for those that are MOS members is something that if you're not taking advantage of that, we welcome uh, more participation and you're welcome to do that. Uh, certainly just let Angela know that you're interested in joining that committee and she will get that uh, information to you so you can join. And then if you're listening and your service is not a member, I would certainly encourage uh, you that it would be in your interest to uh, become a member or even an associate member of our organization because the actions that we take uh, do benefit everyone and certainly everybody's input may ha- allows us to make uh, good decisions not only as a reimbursement committee but as a board of directors on behalf of all not only all of our members but all EMS providers in the state of Michigan. Yeah and just to mimic what Ron had to say as well I agree um, we are better together and you know we want to ensure that we're representing as a reimbursement committee all different types and sizes of providers across the state and that we're not only fighting for ourselves there's a lot of times that ron and i have discussions or meetings with payers that we have actually no claim history with and but we're there to represent the you know our community because we are all one in the same Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And thank you, Ron Slegel from Emergent Health Partners, the chair of the Moz Reimbursement Committee, Katie Arns from Life EMS Ambulance, the vice chair or co-chair of the same committee. We appreciate you both joining us today. For those of you listening, you may get a copy of this episode and all of the notes at miambulance.org slash podcast. We hope you'll subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moz Monthly Podcast, the go-to source for information about Michigan's EMS system. Be sure to visit miambulance.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access other important information from the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services.